Amen. Well, we're studying the book of Revelation, and I'd uh, like to begin by reminding you again of some of the basic underlying principles that help us in understanding this book. Firstly, it's in, in large part, Revelation is a, a book of pictures, pictures many of which would cannot possibly be understood in a pedantic, literal sense, but rather as figurative, a figurative series of principles that are applicable in every age. The, the dragon, for example, which we saw last Lord's Day evening, uh, which appears to John in his vision, uh, it appears to him as a real dragon, but it was in fact a picture or representation of Satan and is in fact in that case specifically identified as such. Likewise, Revelation is not warning us against a literal beast coming up out of the sea, a monster with multiple horned heads, which we're to watch for uh, as, um, as a literal figure in the past, present, or future. But rather, we're being warned against the malignant, persecuting uh, power of Satan operating in and through the nations of this world and their, and their governments uh, for which the monster stands. Uh, secondly, the book of Revelation of our Lord is revealing to us um, principles of generalized events rather than specific one-time occurrences. These are principles that outline recognizable historic events, but which are continuously reoccurring. And if you read the Bible at all, you see how prophecy often reoccurs multiple times. And so especially we see it in this book. Um, but uh, uh, continuing in, in, through the church age, and yet with one last tumultuous occurrence at the end of the age. Uh, in other words, what we see as we read through uh, the book uh, is a description of the experiences of the church of Jesus Christ from the time of Christ's first coming to uh, the second coming to judge the nation, shown to us in seven parallel sections, but all of them moving or progressing toward an end depicted in chapters 21 and 22. For example, in the third cycle, uh, which we saw uh, last Sunday, um, in chapter 12, it begins with a clear reference to the birth of Christ, the man-child, who's threatened by the dragon, who seeks to devour the infant, and ends in chapter 14 with a description of the second coming with the Son of Man returning to judge the earth. And so the entire gospel age is spanned from first advent to second, from Christ's birth to his return. And the same pattern is basically repeated throughout the entire book in each of the seven sections, again, progressing even so. Well, this evening we come to the fourth uh, cycle of visions in chapters 15 and 16, which once more cover the same period as the previous three cycles, the interadvental period, the period in which you and I are living. But you'll notice that there is a is progressively more emphasis upon the climactic judgments of the second coming and less upon the birth of Christ, regarding which there's actually no explicit reference uh, at all in this cycle. But what we need to see in these two chapters is the great difference between those who follow Christ and those who do not. 
Let's open our Bibles to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ as revealed to his servant John, chapters 15 and 16. Follow along as I read. What you hear next is the word of God. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. With them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing to the, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Chapter 16. Then I saw a loud voice or heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came on the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water saying, Just you are, O Holy One, who is and who was. Uh, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. And you have given them black, uh, blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the, uh, the altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, True and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. 
For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake, and there, <clears throat> such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven uh, on people. And they cursed God for the plague and the hail, because the plague was so severe. Amen. Well, in the uh, first four verses, um, looking at, and now at the, um, the survey and uh, commentary, point um, uh, B of my outline, in those first four verses we read about the seven angels who are um, prepared to pour out the seven last plagues, by which you'll be relieved to note verse 15, verse 1, they are the last for with them the wrath of God is finished. Um, but when we get uh, this vision from heaven, um, uh, the saints uh, are giving praise to God for what he's done. So this is a picture in the beginning of our text of the church triumphant, standing on the other side of death, rejoicing at the end of it all, and rejoicing in God's judgments. It is here uh, included here to encourage the church militant that is, you and I, who are in the midst of the fight. Well, with verse 5 then, we're introduced to the um, seven angels dressed as priests of the Old Testament in pure white robes with golden sashes intended to assure us of the holiness of God's judgments uh, that will follow. And they're given these bowls, one uh, each by the four living creatures, one of those mysterious seraphim that stand ministering before God day and night. And because God sent these bowls filled with his wrath, uh, which is intended for the wicked and the impenitent on earth, these judgments should serve as warnings to them. If perhaps it's not too late for them to turn from the devil and his works and serve the living God. Uh, the first four bowls are poured out upon, uh, the first one poured upon the land and the sea and the inland waters and the heavens respectively, each four, and they're exactly similar to the judgments poured out in the same four places in connection with the sounding of the four trumpets back in Revelation 8, 7 to 12. So these first plagues remind us of, of also what God inflicted upon the Egyptians. Uh, the fifth plague is a 
plague of darkness, which is particularly fitting. Darkness for those who do darkness, for those who prefer the Lord of darkness over the Lord of light. The Apostle John writes of our Lord, The light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows after me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light, but those who reject him, those who passively ignore him, are ultimately to be named as children of darkness and wrath. They reject the loving rule of God over their lives. If they've ever heard of Jesus at all, they want no part of him. They deliberately suppress the knowledge of God which they innately possess. Uh, and so they get the darkness that they're more comfortable with anyway. Uh, and uh, and uh, Satan promises freedom, but of course he gives nothing better than dark slavery. Slavery to sin, slavery to self. Now with the sixth plague... Chapter 16, verse 12. We have described really the beginning of the end. And yet it also stands uh, as for the ongoing battle between the kingdom of, of, of Satan and his allies and the kingdom of Christ and the confessing church, the, the people of God. Uh, this is the same thing we saw back in chapter 11 when we had the picture of the two witnesses and their conflict with the beast in Sodom and in Egypt identified as Babylon. Here also we're introduced to Armageddon and the Battle of Armageddon, which is often associated with the end of the world. Uh, the Euphrates River is dried up to allow the movement of great armies. It is a great gathering of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, the counterfeit trinity, of which I spoke last Sunday, performing miraculous signs. Why? To to, to deceive the world and to engage them in one last great battle. Now, Megiddo was an important city in the Middle East. It was a crossroad. It was a junction of, of trade routes. In ancient days, whoever controlled Megiddo controlled much of the commerce in the Middle East. In fact, it's recorded that Pharaoh once said, he who takes Megiddo has taken a thousand cities. Thus, as someone has said, now, the term, the Battle of Armageddon, has come to mean a very decisive battle which determines the ultimate outcome of a conflict. Um, on the other hand, to say it again, Armageddon symbolizes, on one hand, every spiritual battle of which, there, um, of which uh, the need was the greatest and the Lord intervenes in the place of his people whenever that occurs. But it also uh, does appear here to be pointing to a final climactic battle as well. Now, trying to peg the reference exclusively to a single physical battle, a great massing of national armies. I, I remember a guy who one time came to repair my, my washing machine, and when he discovered I was a religious man, he, he, he pulled out his wallet and took out a paper newspaper clipping, uh, which he which he proceeded to show me to prove that, that this was, you know, he had it all figured out which these, who these armies were. And, um, and, you know, it's the new muscular China or, or the, the Muslim nations of the Middle East versus the armies of Western Europe America on a literal plane of Esdralon. That's simply uh, speculation. 
and in the end really serves no serious purpose. The most important thing to see here is that some great climactic uh, conflict or battle will precede the return of Christ and the final judgment, the final pouring out of the seventh bowl, certainly referenced to the end of chapter 16, about which we're really not told very much, only that it unleashes a great earthquake and huge hailstones. Uh, we learn more about this in chapter 19 and 20. So, we come to number two in my outline. Two visions, two groups. What we've had so far is a very brief outline of chapter 16, chiefly. Now, what can we learn from this? What could be the, the intention of God the Holy Spirit in, in preserving this portion of Scripture for us today? It uh, is to remind us once again of the spiritual battle in which we're engaged in and to show us two visions. What we get and when we boil it all down in these chapters is two chapters composed of two visions of two different groups of people. Now, I've taken this out of order, speaking first of chapter 16, describing God's justice poured out, and we've seen that in other cycles as well. But here it's given to us in the figure of bowls of judgment. These bowls are not poured out indiscriminately, however, but upon those who do not have the mark of the beast, whose number and mark, 666, we saw last week, is not to be understood as a dramatic one-time day phenomenon alone, but as a designation, as the identification for men and women of every age who have come to worship the, uh, the dragon and the beast, that is to say, those who have given their heart and life to the service of the devil. Chapter 2, verse 6, verse 2. Now, this is alarmingly simple. Uh, any life that is not dedicated to Christ, brothers and sisters, is by default automatically a life given to the service of the devil, whether people are aware of that or not, whether they like that or not, and very often they're not and they don't. Um, they're the ones uh, who will feel these judgments of God most keenly, which are, which are symbolized by these bowls of wrath. But see how they respond to these things. That's the point I want to lay down most thickly this evening. How do they respond to God's judgments and warnings? And the answer is, they respond with anger and resentment and cursing of God. Now, as I said to some people when I was preaching Saturday at a funeral, you call the old pastor, you get the same old stories. Um, I don't think I've shared this one with you. But anyway, I, in seminary I had this, um, this uh, professor who was a southerner. And he had some interesting ways of putting things. And he said, you know, how do you tell a good dog from a bad dog? And he says, a, a bad dog, when you whip him, comes back, or a good dog, when you whip him, comes back with his tail between his legs. A bad dog bites you. That was a, a way of saying that. And, and in some ways that illustrates what we're saying today. Uh, we, we read regarding this fourth plague that those seared with intense heat 
what do these unbelievers do? They, they curse the name of God who had power over these plagues. They do not repent and give him the glory. 16.8. In response to the fifth plague, that of darkness, the spiritual darkness and emptiness, a terror. What do we read? Verse 11. That people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed God, the God of heaven, for their pains and sores. They did not repent. They refused to repent of their deeds. And again, with the sixth plague, where God prepares them for a final judgment. How do they respond to that? They only gather themselves together with the devil to continue their battle against the Lord, to continue their rebellion against Christ. Let us throw off their, 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 their bonds, as it says in Psalm 2, and um, throw off his holy laws. Uh, even after the earthquake, even after the, the hailstones that represent the prelude to the final judgment, we read not of repentance, not of a pleading for mercy, but again, of men cursing God, presumably with the last of their breath. Here are people who deny God, and yet all of a sudden when things get tough, become interestingly religious. Have you ever noticed that? And they start you know, cursing God, a God that they confess not even to believe. Well, what are these bowls of wrath after all? They're the very thing the Apostle Paul speaks of in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth with their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them so that men are without excuse. For although they know God, they neither glorify Him as God or give thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts darkened. And Paul goes on by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to speak of God's judgments against such people. He gives them over to a depraved mind uh, and, um, and, and the power of the devil with whom they've allied themselves in their rejection of Christ. You see, the unbeliever sees no point, no, no purpose in suffering. Coronavirus means nothing to him except inconvenience and difficulty and heartache. Um, and, and, and it's meaningless. It just makes him mad at God, who, 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 who he accuses of everything, denying his own sin, denying his own rebellion. The sinner will not for a moment concede that a supernatural, personal, moral God is in control of his life and destiny. But when things go badly for him, when God brings temporal judgments that might cause him to see his sin and run to Christ, he simply shakes his fist um, and blames God for not controlling things the way that would please him. Well, this is, this is a sad thing. We, we'd say, but the, there but the grace of God goes I, right? <laughs> um, and uh, it's very sorrowful. Uh, the, the way of the sinner who, who faithlessly, blindly, looks upon the world and his vicissitudes and simply hardens his heart against God and confirms thereby his unregenerate state and, and, and seals his final end. Uh, those of you who, who know children, this is very personal, uh, you, you know what a grievous thing it is when a child we deeply love refuses to receive discipline for their anger and disobedience and just harden their heart against their parent, is it anything, anything worse than that? It's surely one of the hardest, most hopeless moments in child rearing is when your child refuses to, to receive discipline sweetly and to 
take it as a loving thing and just gets angry, um, there's not much you can do. It's all God's grace at that point, isn't it? Um, could there be someone here, even this evening, who's, who's um, angry at, at Christ? Um, um, would you rather serve the devil? Don't you know his service is hard and his wages are, are death, separation from God in this world and judgment in the world to come? Judgments even in this life. It's a bad business. No one should want to end up in Revelation chapter 16. We must, every one of us, sooner rather than later, repent of our hard hearts and ask Jesus to save us and be merciful to us and give us wisdom to see those things that occur around us with spiritual eyesight. We may not always understand it. Something bad may happen. We're not really understanding it. But we think, Lord, help me to understand this. But thy will be done. That's a, that's a Christian way to see things. Well, God's people, by the grace of God, in other words, see things differently. Um, point B, the vision of the saints. Uh, this is the second vision. This is the second group of people of which the, uh, the chapters speak. The first vision is about the children of wrath and their anger uh, uh, and the plagues visited upon them, chapter 16. And the second vision is about the saints and the praise of God and their praises of his judgments. Um, they're represented in the first four verses of chapter 15. John sees a multitude and he describes them as those who have conquered the beast in his image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb of Jesus. Now, who are these people? Well, these are those who refuse to bow to the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're believers of every age who've resisted being swallowed up by a faithless, unbelieving, secular culture. They said yes to Jesus. They include uh, those of you who've renounced the devil and confessed Christ and, and his holy law and gospel and who are trying your hardest to follow him faithfully by his grace. And what's the song of Moses and the Lamb that they're singing? And why are they singing it? Well, brothers and sisters, this is a very old song. <laughs> This is the song that was first sung by the children of Israel who were delivered by God and escaped from idolatry and bondage and slavery in Egypt. Remember, they crossed the Red Sea, which God parted for them. And now they're on the other side and the waters have begun to flow again and they're standing on the far side of the shore and they've been delivered, they've been saved, uh, which is a picture of our being delivered and crossed over from death to life. And, and, and they watch this spectacle. It's a spectacle of judgment. They watch Pharaoh and his army being engulfed by the sea that God closes over them because they would not accept God's purposes, because they repeatedly hardened their hearts. And even after many plagues, yes, remember those plagues, and they continually hardened their hearts and rushed after the Israelites to enslave them again when they thought they had a chance to do it. But God intervenes and brings a final end uh, with these waters of judgment. God brings them to their Armageddon. 
while the children of Israel sing, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. Um, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Well, <clears throat> so now we are here at Revelation 15. And uh, 2 and 4, the delivered saints, those who have triumphed over sin and the devil, are singing the same song. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What is it they're rejoicing over? They're rejoicing over the justice and the honor of God and the vindication uh, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel offered to the nations. Uh, God, God saves us, brothers and sisters, for his own glory. And we rejoice to see him glorified. We rejoice to see, we pray for our enemies that they might, that they might turn from hardness and, and sing the song with us. Uh, that's what they're rejoicing over. In verse 5 of chapter 16, we read about this one particular angel in charge of the waters um, and uh, he, who points out the particular justice of the third and fourth plague of turning the waters into blood. He says, you are just in these judgments, he says to God. For they, referring to the wicked, the followers of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and now in return you're giving them to drink the blood uh, that they deserve. And, And then the martyrs and the saints and the overcomers of the church who overhear the angel chime in saying, yes, true and just are your judgments, O God. Now, back in chapter 6, you remember the martyrs crying out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, how long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And they're told to wait a little longer. But there is a day when they will sing and we'll be singing with them. And here it is recorded in the book, chapter 15, verse 2. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. So, what am I saying? Simply that the attitude of God's people over his temporal judgments upon the world must never be done in cursing and anger at God, but in an attitude of rejoicing and acclamation. Not of selfishness or desire for revenge, but rejoicing to see for the sake of Christ and his honor and his glory and for a hope that sinners might wake up and repent. God is vindicated by his judgments. His truth is uphold. People, people say, oh, if there was only judgment and there's only justice in this world, well, there will be justice. And it will be established before the eyes of men. And the world hates it. Uh, they refuse to acknowledge the hand of God bringing disasters at all. They, they study the weather charts and the hurricanes and they call it all a matter of chance and cruel, and cruel fate. And they coldly shoulder God aside. What does God have to do with any of this? The unbeliever hates God. And he hates the judgments of God, which God graciously gives to them to humble them and to warn them. But 
They refuse to understand them, refuse to be humbled by anything. The unbeliever cannot and will not seek to understand and profit from afflictions, but hardens his heart and curses God. But the saints, the saints, the Christians, see the sovereign hand of God and they pray for his mercies and they pray for their enemies and they rejoice over his forbearance and patience. The Christian prays for the wicked but rejoices whenever the honor of God is upheld. Do we wince when we hear the Lord's name taken in vain? Well, someday that won't happen. We rejoice even in afflictions with the hope and prayer that, that some may yet repent and spend and not spend eternity in hell. Whenever we see God's, God's grace at work in our own lives and even when lessons are hard and expensive, we trust God's sovereign purpose and we trust his loving promises um, and we trust his gracious covenant. That's the great difference between the children of God and the children of wrath, the children of the devil. And that's what we see with these two visions given by John in chapters 15 and 16. Two visions, two people, two responses to the justice of God. And here's the sum of it and my conclusion. Words freely borrowed from commentator Cole Clasier. God demonstrates again in this vision, uh, this fourth cycle, what he has shown us before. That in this age, there will be troubles in the world. Behind many of these troubles is a great spiritual conflict between good and evil, between Christ and the devil. And those who refuse to turn to Christ in response to God's warning will be punished in the end. If they're not with Christ, they're with the devil. It's a matter of justice. If you're a child of God, remember he's sovereign and omnipotent and good. Your prayers will be answered. He is in control. And when your prayers don't appear to be answered, he's still in control. He will bring his justice to those who have been wronged in the world. He will vindicate his people for the sake of his own holy name. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Amen. Amen. Lord our God, we again see your word speaking to us clearly and pretty simply, about our need to trust you, follow you, believe in you, and recognize your grace and your love for us. We pray for those around us who harden their hearts at their misfortunes. We pray that you would soften them. We pray that these things might drive them to the cross. They might see their utter inability and utter, utter ability to, to do anything that will be good. Lord, we um, commit these things to you. Help us to rejoice in you each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.